Welcome to the Love Fly podcast. It's Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach for 25 years. And today's special guest is somebody I've known for a very long time, uh, Captain Peter Legg. Welcome, Pete. Tis great to talk to you, and it's Thank really you. good to see you again. I'm going to ask you something, right? Well, I can say something straight away before we get into it. Just want to say thank you very much for all you've been doing in the Facebook group. For those who are in the Facebook group, which is called something really snappy, like Love Fly, Overcome Fear of Flying. Yeah, catchy, snappy title. Pete's been on there answering lots of stuff with his pilot experience. I just want to say that up front. Thank you, because it's it goes down really well. We've known each other quite a while now, but... Other people obviously may may not have come across you yet. So would you mind just doing kind of like a potted history of who's Pete Leg? Yeah, my pleasure it is. So uh, started off in the Air Force, 27 years, man and boy, joined his apprentice, got my commission, flew Phantoms, Tomcats for the United States Navy, and then came back to the mighty Tornado F2 and then F3. Golf War 1 and 2, got a little bit tired of people shooting at me and thought, this is no longer for me, and then went into the civilian world. Uh, joined Virgin, spent the last 20-odd years with Virgin, had a fantastic time, and then sadly in May, let me that, May 20, mm. hit my 65th birthday, and despite my dashingly good looks, <laughs> you can't fly commercial beyond 65. Right. So that was the end of my civilian flying career. But an absolutely fantastic time. Really enjoyed it, and wouldn't change wouldn't change it for the world. Thanks for that. So the sixty five thing, I uh, I knew that, but I just thought maybe people didn't, maybe people wouldn't know that. What what's the reason behind that age? It, it's an interesting question, actually, because it's just the CAA rules. It used to be sixty, mm. and it used to be. When you hit 55, you couldn't be a captain yeah, uh, anymore. And you used to have to move from left seat where the captain sits to the right seat as a first officer for your final five years. I think it probably goes back in history a little bit medical. But again, as a pilot, you have an annual medical. When you reach the age of 60, you have a six-monthly medical to check right. you out. Yeah. Now, there is, I believe, the Australians, and I'm no experts on this, you in Australia, they have a system where you have a physical age, actually, you know, like me, I'm now 66 going on 67, and then they have a medical age. Mm. Well, that might work for some in a good way, and it might work for some in a bad <laughs> way, depending on how look, you look after your body. So imagine being 25 and being told technically you're 60. <laughs> yeah, it could happen. But, you know, but the thing is, is it a sensible rule? Yeah, it's, it's not unreasonable. Mm. yeah okay would i have liked to continue to 70 yeah probably yeah because with with the increases in health and our sort of general life expectancy seems to be going up it i was pleased to see that it had changed i do remember do remember when it changed from 55 to 60 and then this thing about the captain ruling as well i remember that yeah it's kind of sensible yeah i suppose probably 65 I don't know. I mean, I know some extremely sprightly 65-year-olds, maybe even yourself. And so you yeah. have to sort of wonder. 
Sorry, uh, tea supply just coming in. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> I have no such delivery. Where's my yeah. tea? So Pete's just been delivered a cup of tea uh, by his partner. Said, oh, yeah. Okay, well, you know, let's settle into the podcast. So I've got a bunch of questions that came up in the Facebook group. And obviously, the, so just a quick bit of spiel. Pete and I's link is that we used to run the Virgin Flamback Fear program together at different points. So there's a chunk of time, probably quite near the beginning, actually, wasn't there when I was first doing it around. So I first set up around 96, 97, ran for a few years with Norman. You remember Norman? And then 2000, uh, sadly, he passed away. And then uh, there were other pilots started to get involved. And I think that's probably when you were started working with me i don't know if that's right does that sound about right that sounds perfect yep yeah so we started off doing courses without flights and then people started saying we want flights we want flights if there's an aircraft there i'd jump on it and so about 2000 2003 that's what the change was so uh, i'm not sure at what point you can then came back again didn't you later and started working uh so i've known pete a long time people really like your style and they find you very easy to to listen to so maybe i should shut up and we can listen to you <laughs> well no you, you, you're right Tiz. and the thing was we always said on the courses you know we wanted the courses to be fun mm. and we're going to have fun and we're going to laugh but it was laugh with you not laugh at mm. you and, and understand where they come from and one of the things i always remember you know <laughs> We talked about fears where they come from there and i think the thing that used to surprise people was when i used to say yeah, I've got a fear. I've got a fear of heights. I really don't like heights. And they always mm. just say, well, how can you fly an aircraft? Whereas people feel enclosed in the aircraft and uncomfortable. For me, being enclosed, actually, that's really safe. You know, you put me on the edge of a cliff, now I'm really uncomfortable because it's out in the open. And yeah. it's, you know, we all have these fears and phobias, and as you've probably said many times, mm. their fear of flying is a rational fear based on a lot of false assumptions, which I'm sure we're going to go into as the, the podcast goes on. Oh, okay, yeah, I like that. So with your fear of heights then, is that to the point where you, you struggle going up a ladder, that, that type of thing? Or? Yeah, exactly that. It's, you know, I'm not big on going up ladders and stuff like that. No, I'll mm. employ a man or lady to do that for me. Mm. Uh, I remember we went to the Eiffel Tower, took my children when they were young there with my good wife and there. I got up to the first level of the Eiffel Tower and the kids, yeah, right, want to go all the way top. And it was, I'm kind of comfortable here. I think I'll stay here. You know. I'll see you when you come back. Yeah, down. yeah. First level's where it's at. I'm not going any higher. Which I think yeah. is really helpful for people because fear of flying sometimes includes fear of heights for a lot of people. And so yeah. it, just, it just goes to show, doesn't it? You're a pilot, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I've seen you doing it. But the fear of heights doesn't stop you because there's something different that happens for you in, in your mentality, isn't there? Yeah, exactly that. Mm. I always say it's a bit like it's like it's like being in a ship that you you know it's a false floor. You're, you're you might be five miles above actual Earth, but you've just got yep. this bit of water that you're bobbing about on. And when you're up there, you could be five miles above, but you're on a firm set, you know, it's terra firma. It's just floating firmer, if that's the thing. No, no you're, you're absolutely right. And I mean, one of the things I'm sure we're going to go on to is turbulence. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned water there. And people, when they talk about turbulence, well, you know, it's terrible. 
But the water analogy is spot on because if you're on a jet ski or a speedboat, then you know you're shooting along, bouncing along the crest of the waves and that, and you do the thump, thump, thump as it goes along. But because you can see the horizon, you can see the land, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you're only you know two feet off the water or anywhere, you're comfortable. Mm. However, when you transfer that to an aircraft, exactly the same is going on. If you think of you know, people talk about jet streams, and there's that lovely lady that we'll talk about. I'm not having that. <laughs> that we go back to. But, you know, in the air, the air is just like water. It's just mm. like a, a fast flowing stream that the aircraft's going through. Yeah. And these bumps and jolts, you know, turbulence that you fear or feel, excuse me, the aircraft's only moving a couple of feet up and down. Mm. But because you're denied your normal senses of sight and, you know, seeing the horizon, particularly if it's dark, all your other senses are, are heightened and certainly the old pressure on your bum. So when the aircraft moves a couple of feet and people will talk about the Magaluf plunge, you know, we plunge thousands of feet in two seconds, which we say, well, that's not physically possible, but it felt like that. And that's the big difference. It feels like it. And I see you took your glass of water there, but we talk about holding up the bottle of water and actually looking how much that water moves. Mm. And actually, it's very little. Yeah. Going back, you know, we as pilots in all things aviation, the planning starts way before that. And we know there are jet streams coming across the Atlantic, blowing west to east. Well, we're going to stay out of those when we fly east to west because we're a commercial enterprise. And a 150-knot jet stream will increase your flight time by about an hour or an hour and a half. Well, commercially, that's not sound. So you'll avoid them generally going east to west. But coming west to east, you want to get in the jet stream because that's going to reduce your flight time by about an hour, hour and a half. In the jet stream, it's smooth, etc. But it's as you transition into it, it can get, and I want to say, it's a little bumpy. It's not, you know, turbulence, we're bouncing off the roof. It's a little bumpy, and if you have a heightened awareness, it's a little uncomfortable. But the aircraft, when they fly along, talk to each other, you know, and we're asking people about, we talk about the ride. Is it a smooth ride or is it a little bumpy or choppy? And we will climb or descend to get out of areas of the more uncomfortable turbulence and stuff like that. Well, but that's a good, going, you link, bring me to a good question, because one of the questions is around... Uh, what are pilots? What do pilots do during turbulence? But I think it'd be better off just to sort of qualify a little bit more in terms of how little it worries pilots and how little it worries yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, we used to joke say, you know, if we got really bad, I put my crossword down and start paying a bit more attention. <laughs> but I'm being facetious. <laughs> well, the point is, the pilots when we're on the flight deck, we're all strapped in. That's just normal safety, etc., etc., etc. So the cabin crew and the customers, you know, once you get airborne through 10,000 feet or whatever, we'll turn the seatbelt sign off because they want to get up, start moving around, enjoying the aircraft, whatever, and just be comfortable. However, when we encounter turbulence that is forecast or, you know, comes out, we'll put the seatbelt sign back on, not because it's dangerous, but we don't want our customers walking down in an area where they're uncomfortable. Because if you get a little jolt, you're off balance, you know, you can fall on somebody, et cetera, et cetera. 
in extreme conditions, and I hesitate whether the extreme, very, very occasionally, we'll say, we'll strap the cabin crew down just because it is a little bit uncomfortable. And again, it's safety. It's the safety of our customers, safety of our passengers. But we use the analogy of when you go to McDonald's, other coffee shops are available, you know, Starbucks, etc., etc. <laughs> they, they give you your tea and coffee with a lid on it and said, be careful, you know, this is this is hot. Well, I was yes. hoping the coffee was hot. Yeah, you know, it, for 99 pence, of course. But on the flight, we serve tea and coffee, pour it, from the teapot or the coffee jug. You don't get a lid on it. Well, if it was that dangerous, we wouldn't be doing that. So it goes back to the point you and I've done it. Yeah, turbulence is uncomfortable. It's not nice. However, no, it, you're not under any threat. And, you know, mm. we have to be careful about how we do that. I'll give you another little story, which was, uh, it was on one of the training flights, new captain, etc., etc. And it's educating our captains as much as it is the customers. And we encountered turbulence, which was an un un uncomfortable mm. uh, and a little bit more than normal turbulence. We were getting bounced around a bit. So his intent was to get the cabin crew sat down. And yeah, brilliant, great idea. Being a new skipper, he grabbed the PA and went, cabin crew, take your seats immediately, full harness. <laughs> we went, right. Not helpful. Good, good call <laughs> to get the cabin crew sat down, but you've just scared the bejeebas out of about 300 passengers. Exactly. Because what you said, you know, well, I haven't got a full artist, I've only got a lap strap. And the point was, we have to be very careful in what we say, mm. because we can actually increase the fear as decrease it. Yeah, yeah, he was debriefed and said, look, good thought next time, but just you know, a nice calm. <laughs> Dull it down a bit, mate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I noticed that I'm really sensitive to this. And so when I'm flying, I listen to the announcements. And most people will just sort of, they'll have a script that they read out. And some, yeah. per, some personalise it. But even the words, sometimes I always say to cabin crew and pilots when I talk at conferences and stuff, I say, don't say things like, when we hit turbulence because in a, yes. to a nervous flyer that's like a wall that you're going to hit whereas if you say you yeah. encounter turbulence or you just talk about it in a more kind of relaxed way just sort of say it we're going to change altitude a little bit you will feel it because you've got you can't see what we can see at the front you know just being able to explain yeah. to people why it's why it doesn't bother you can be massively helpful. And it can help not cure a fear in the, in the moment, but it can certainly add to that kind of, they can have a different view on it then rather than thinking, oh my goodness, not these, these big walls of turbulence everywhere. Yeah. Combined with air pockets as well, obviously, because that's the other threat that's. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the air pocket, another great myth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but this stuff takes a hold, doesn't it? And if you don't know any different, it's very easy and quite understandable. And so when you've got nerves, uh, are you nervous or something? You look for information to kind of make sense of it, don't you? So, yes, and as you say, you, you reinforce this fear. Mm. And we talk about that. So, so yeah. So, bottom line: turbulence, yeah, uncomfortable, not nice for some people. But the thing is, it's not dangerous, and that's the big thing. Really. So, it's imagine you're in turbulence for a while. Maybe you know you've because sometimes you get it. You get a forecast that it might be here, and it either turns up or it doesn't. Uh, but imagine you're in it for, you know, maybe say 10 minutes. 
what would you be doing then as a as a pilot if anything right so in terms of flying the plane nothing because the autopilot's in and the autopilot can fly much to my disgust better than i and actually <laughs> and the 787 other they have active gas response so the actual aircraft tries and smooths out the turbulence for you so what do you call it active life. gust response active gust response oh, awesome yeah so it, it's it's sensing the outside air and it will do things through the autopilot to try and smooth the flight out for people so one aggressive if it starts to move off altitude a little bit it will gently try and get back to the altitude and when i'm saying moving off altitude we're talking feet not yeah. tens of feet or hundreds yeah. of feet yeah, yeah. it is just moving a little bit yeah so that's what the aircraft's doing what am i doing as captain yeah i'm monitoring i'm watching it i will then do a pa to the customers you know an announcement much along the lines i've done it's a ladies and gentlemen yes we're encountering a little bit of turbulence yeah encountering you know, oh, nice here. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i do the rivers rivers in uh, in the sky speech right nice. just, it's not not uncomfortable it's not nice i have put the seatbelt side on for your safety yeah so i think the main message there is that you're not worried the aircraft's not bothered by it it's just a comfort thing what about if it were, if it went on for like you know like 20 minutes and you're like oh this is doing my head in would you try and change altitude or anything Sorry, you just yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 you know, if people up ahead are saying, you know, the turbulence is continuous, there, yeah, we will definitely will try and get up or down, or step to the side, step around it. Mm. I mean, we haven't talked about thunderstorms, but the same, you know, thunderstorms we can see them on the radar. We will avoid them. We will never get around it. And you do the same with turbulence. What I don't do with turbulence is give people a forecast, you know, say, well, we've heard up ahead, you know, in about an hour, we're going to encounter turbulence. Because if I do that, the bloody stopwatches are out, or the clock exactly. in an hour. And the same, you don't say, well, we're going to come out of it in an hour, because mm. it might not be. So yeah. you, know, you resist giving forecast, which you don't know if it's going to be accurate or not. And actually, sometimes people say, well, there's turbulence up in an hour, and then you go through it, and it's, there's it's none. Yeah. It's all gone. So, because yeah, it's, it's, it's air movement, isn't it? And air is it's moved. So, yeah. it's because it moves somewhere else. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's really useful. And also, the other point that you've, there's two things that you said there, which I just like to shine a light on. So, one is the fact that not giving people exact times when it's going to happen and when it's going to end is up because actually you don't know and it doesn't really matter because you know you're safe. And the second thing is, is that you're in communication with other pilots on, on the same routing. And that's just a good reminder. We said this in another podcast, but I think it's really good for people hearing this to, to, to be reminded that actually you're all talking to each other when you're in your different airspace. And, uh, and the, I suppose the third point is about that minimum separation that you've got. So you are able to step to the side or move up and down because it's all within sort of, I don't know what you call them, corridors or highways no, in the are, sky no, you're right they are corridors you know think of them as motorways in the sky because you know pre-covid you know you can look uh, there'll be some google out there you can have a look at all these aircraft you know early morning all the aircraft taking off from uk going to the states and then late at night uk time all the aircraft taking off from the states coming back home mm. and there's literally hundreds of aircraft going through all these corridors 
they're, they're called North Atlantic tracks, but corridors for you and I, a bit like motorways in the sky. Yeah. And people, before anybody gets nervous about it, no, we are separated by time and altitude, and it's all, all coordinated. <laughs> oh, that's good. I think it's really helpful to get that visualisation in your head that you've got, it's almost like an envelope around you, isn't it, or a big yeah. bubble, that if anybody was to even to stray into it, that you you would know when you see on your radar you get you've got your alerts and it's all strictly controlled i think that's the main message there yeah exactly that and you talked about the alerts there the thing called tcas traffic collision avoidance system basically the tcas is brilliant so people say well how does the tcas work well it, the aircraft talks to the other aircraft and let's say because your you, your audience they are great catastrophizers right no way so yeah Apparently so. <laughs> well, what happens if the captain has a heart attack? The FO takes over. Yeah, but what happens if the captain has a heart attack, the FO is not feeling well, and all the air traffickers have got food poisoning? Okay, so let's go with that scenario. And the two planes are flying head-on at the same altitude. And you've got so an engine clearly. failure. But the point is, the TCAS systems talk to each other, and you will get an alert. So the first alert is it will go, traffic, traffic. Okay, so just in case everybody's fallen asleep or they're dealing with a heart attack and not paying attention. And, you know, so that wakes everybody up, right, there's something going on. And then if the closure continues, it will issue a TCAS avoidance maneuver. So it will say to one aircraft, TCAS climb, TCAS climb. At the same time, the other aircraft will go in, give you a clue, TCAS descend, TCAS descend. So they will actually command the avoidance. Mm. They only do it in the vertical sense. They don't do it laterally. So they don't issue turn left, turn right. But again, these are mandatory. You can't mm. ignore those. If you get one, you do, you do it, you action it, and ask questions afterwards. Yeah, I like that. It's so it's pretty- like the worst case scenario... I think all, and that's the thing, isn't it? The messages are there's always a backup to a backup to a backup, and that's really helpful. And just to clarify, in case now someone's got this fear, like, oh, what if the pilots fall asleep? The cabin crew are checking on them every twenty minutes, and there's two or three yeah. of them in there at all times. So, you know, sometimes more. Because I know people will be thinking, oh, I hadn't thought about that one. What if they do yeah, fall exactly. asleep? Yeah. So yeah, which no, it just doesn't happen. We're, we're checked on by the cabin crew. Yeah. We are educated in how to manage our sleep, and generally on the long flights, we will have three pilots. Mm. And while two pilots are manning the flight deck, one pilot's taking a break, taking a rest, and actually sleeping. So yeah. that we are we are all awake. And it was a joke when I said doing the crossword. Now I'm actually yeah. actively monitoring what the aircraft yes. is. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good that you've clarified that in case anyone's left the podcast and said, well, sod that. Yeah. Uh, so... So I think one of the things, uh, there's quite a few questions that have come up. Uh, one which was around go-arounds. And yeah. uh, I think that was the one that was initially, I, I saw you answer that one, but just maybe just, would you mind just talking for a couple of minutes about what that is, why it's not a problem, yeah. etc. It was interesting. We'll, we'll go to that specific one in a minute, but it was interesting. You know, people talk about go-arounds and that's what it's for. Cool. That's what a pilot will actually say. Now, you can go around for a whole number of reasons. Uh, it can be air traffic called, you know, insufficient interval. The lady or gentleman has landed before you, takes a bit too long, clearing the runway. 
and air traffic will just come up, Virgin 7, go around, go around. And at that point, whoever's the pilot flying, be the captain or first officer, will go, okay, go around. Mm. We'll talk about sims a bit later on, but basically we practice go-arounds in the sim all the you know, every time we go in the sim, which is every six months, we do go-arounds. And it'll be a go-around at 200 feet. Sometimes we'll do a go-around after touchdown. Okay? So they're practice, they're normal, etc., etc. Now, a good landing starts from a stable, good approach all the way down. If you've got an unstable approach, right, one of us will call that. We have to be stabilized at a thousand feet, which is on center line, on glide path, within 10 knots of the required speed and the appropriate power setting. Yeah. If we're not there, that's an automatic go around call. And mm-hmm. either pilot can call it or the pilot on the jump seat can call it. So, so you might need to clarify the word unstable a little bit more. Well, okay. Yeah, an unstable approach is, you know, if you're not pointing, basically, if you're not pointing the runway, configured at the correct speed, that's un- defined yes. an unstable approach. It's not dangerous. Yes, but it would be inappropriate to con- continue that approach. Yeah? yeah, yeah, good. So all pilots are trained to that. You are. That's your first gate. Thousand feet, in good shape, ready for landing. If you look at that BA one. And most people looked at, you know, oh, my God, when he's doing the old uh, touchdown, little skip, touches his left wheel, yeah? However, I looked at it from the approach. If you look at the approach, it's a beautiful approach. He's hardly moving. He's nicely driving down to, I say he, it could be she, but they're nicely driving down towards the runway. Brilliant. Well done. Nice. As they get to touchdown... He didn't bounce. There's a little skip. But probably now they've, I don't know, okay, this is not a sensible place to continue with this landing. And so they clearly made the decision, okay, let's go around. And there would have been clear communication in the cockpit that said, go around. Yeah. Okay. Once yeah. that decision is made, there's a button you push, which is take off, go around, boom, brings the power up, and the aircraft nicely goes around. So in my, as I said in, in the post, I think they did a fantastic job. Mm. They resisted the temptation to continue with that landing. Yeah, spot on. Went around front. The bit that I find sad is, where's the video of the subsequent landing? Yes. Because I'm sure that was straight down, beautiful landing, yeah, yeah. nothing happened. Good point. It doesn't make the news, does it? You know, like today everyone landed. Yeah, it's not interesting. They but, so everyone, they still landed, but it was a bit of a. They had a maybe a side gust or something. Who knows? Who knows? But well, they, that's all. That's the point. training, isn't it? You know. And that's the thing. The training kicked in, and they did exactly the right thing. So you know. Yeah. Great credit to them. Yeah, I mean that's what you're there for, isn't it? To, to be planning, uh, and I know when I've talked to other pilots, you're always thinking. As you're coming into land, you're always thinking, be ready to do a go around. And I've sat in the flight deck when that when we used to be able to do that and watched you guys yeah. doing it. You're talking to each other all the time, ready to do that if you need to, right down to the last moment. And I think that's just all part yeah. of your, your skill set, isn't it? Your training. Yeah, exactly that. And and BA uh, take it to, in my mind, to the next level. And it's one of those things, you know, it's a bit like 
do you put butter or do you put cream on a scone? Depends whether you're in Cornwall or Devon, you know. But there's all different ways to do it. One of the things BA did, and I did some of my training with BA, is one of the pilot, the pilot that's landing the aircraft, yeah, he doesn't, he or she, forgive me using he, but it's generic, okay, they, right, the pilot that's landing the aircraft doesn't fly the approach. It's the non-landing pilot flies the approach and their mission is they're going to go around. That's mm. all in their head. All I'm going to do is fly the approach, go around. That's it. The pilot's going to do the landing only takes over when they are confident that their landing can be assured. Other airlines do it in different ways, but the mm. point you made earlier on is, yeah, there is no commitment to landing. Even when in, in Virgin, we get down to our 200 feet minimums, we say continue, because you don't want to get it locked in that you're going to land, because between 200 feet and touchdown, as happened to poor BHR, you may get a gust of wind or yeah. something upsets your approach, or, you know, there's an aircraft taxis on the runway, God forbid. Any contingency could happen. Yeah, and I like that. It's that sort of idea that you're you're in full on full alert ready to do whatever you need to do and that's the thing for people to take away isn't it so yeah awesome uh let me ask you some more questions and there's a few random ones here i think i'll go with this one because i think it's no it's not linked at all we'll go for it anyway <laughs> it came in it late happened. just this morning i noticed it it was around the i suppose it's around trim but it was linked it was prompted by a comment from Simon in the Facebook group who's talking about when he used to be a dispatcher and he how he used to feel a little bit nervous going oh you know how have I put this if I put everything in the right place around the the aircraft so you get the correct distribution of the weight and I just thought what oh. you know give us a pilot sort of view sorry to spring that one on you because that's just coming yeah, this okay. morning yeah so yeah, basically see questions load and balance has the aircraft yeah. been loaded yeah yeah okay yeah. The thing is, the dispatchers, the cargo people, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they're as highly trained as we, the pilots. Yep, they are professionals, same as the engineers. And it was one of the previous posts I put in, and I probably my bad, I didn't include the dispatchers as ever. But we work as a team; we're a family. Mm. You know, he I knew all our dispatchers at Heathrow. We knew all our engineers. You talk to them pretty much on a first name terms once you've been there a while. And it's the same with them. You are an integral crew. You know each other. And I know they're going to do their job. Mm. I don't physically go around and make sure that pallet's meant to be there or that pallet's meant to be there. No, you trust them. And there's an element of trust. The same as the engineers. I know the engineers are never going to give me an aircraft that I shouldn't be flying. The same way the load master people on the ground are not going to give me an aircraft with an incorrect loading on it and stuff like that. So it's trust, and, and mm. I trust trust them implicitly. Yeah, I mean, like they all do. Yeah. You, there's like two or three of you in the flight deck checking what each of you do, and they yeah. have the same of engineers. Uh, you know, they have counter signatures and all the rest of it. So it's not it's not just like one person goes, oh, I think this looks about right. There's always no, a no, check, no, no. checking process in place, which I think is the bit that people need to hear. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. This is, I think, would be a smaller question, uh, which is around undercover marshals. Are there any of those on board? Uh, some people are saying, I'd like to know if there are. 
Uh, some said it'd be reassuring. Others, you know, this is a question. You said that many times. Be a smaller question. <laughs> I think it's going to be a longer question. Oh, is it? All oh, right then. Okay. Yeah. Well, sorry about that. Wait till the next one. Then. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the best, right. <laughs> I saw that question. I thought, oh, okay. I have never had an undercover marshal on any of my flights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. As the captain, you are notified of any weapons on your flight. So if somebody, you know, flying back, they've been over here on a shooting competition or whatever, then we're notified and the weapon goes in the hole. They don't carry the weapon in the cabin at all. And any ammunition is separate from the weapon. And that all goes in the hold, you know, out of the way, never seen it. But the question really is, why does somebody want a marshal actually in the cabin? And if you go back to 9-11, there was a big debate, certainly in America, where the American pilots wanted to carry weapons, in, having their flight bag, you know, Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum or God knows what else. And I think the, the Balpers view, in our view, was, well, why would you want to do that? Because then the terrorist doesn't have to carry a weapon on board because you've taken it on for him. So that's a big debate. But the real answer is, okay, why do they want the Sky Marshal on there? You know, Liam Neeson is busy doing films. He can't be on every flight, but it is the stuff of Hollywood. But, okay, so what you're saying is you're worried about a terrorist or a bad person getting on the flight. Mm. Well, Andy Blackwell would be a good man to ask me about that because he's our ex-security man at Virgin. Uh, and we have briefs on it. A lot of it is need to know they can't tell us. But it's a layered defence around the airport and the aircraft. So from the time the passenger books the flight, you can't pay cash because actually in booking it with your credit card, that's starting to profile you already. And that continues all the way through your journey. You're being looked at, checked. When you go through security, you know, are you a bit nervous? Are, are you a bit, mm, something's not quite right here. Mm. And people have noticed that people get pulled aside for additional checks. So my answer is, I don't know, maybe some airlines do. People talk about LL. I have no idea. Yeah, and the yeah. point is, do we need them? No, not in current climate, because the layered defence, and almost goes back to the pilots. Mm. We've got check within check within check. Well, the same happens with security. Yeah. I mean, also to add to it. I'm talking around the garden a bit there, but no, no, that's good. That's good. I think that was that's the facts, isn't it? Because Sarah Fowler yeah. came on to the Facebook group and answered. You know, talked a little bit about the crew training, and you know the fact we you've got restraints and you've got handcuffs and you're also keeping an eye on people and you know you use your communication to de-escalate situations and keep an eye out. But then the other thing that people may not realise is about how difficult it is to actually get into the flight deck. Oh, difficult, I wouldn't say impossible, but difficult. And the other thing is, Sarah, bless her, yes, I read Sarah's post, mm. brilliant post as ever, mm. and the people, I don't know, I was, the cabin crew aren't there for tea and coffee, beef, chicken, or vegetarian, etc., etc. What? I like it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> they are the four or five emergency services in the sky. If anything goes wrong... They are superbly trained to deal with it. Mm. If you've got a disruptive passenger, as Sarah said, they're all trained, they'll deal with it, and they'll handcuff them or do whatever they need to do, restrain restrain the customer. 
will the big burly captain come out of the flight to, to deal with it? Absolutely not. If I come out, all I'm going to do is escalate it. So it's actually better to let the cabin crew, who's superbly trained, deal with it. Yeah. We're going to go on, you know, in my long career, I've diverted four times, okay? Once for a disruptive passenger, you know? He had been dealt with by the cabin crew superbly. However, you know, he was making threats, right? We divert, get him off the aircraft, you know? Yeah. And you can swim home. No, Joe. But was, you know? And that <laughs> was it dealt with. But they're banned from Before. the airline then, aren't they? That's the thing. They can't come back. Correct. And it was the uh, Canadian judge finding, I think it was 15,000 US, uh, sorry, Canadian dollars. Good man. Your customer's going to ask, well, okay, five times divert. What were the other four diverts? They were medical emergencies. That's all they were. Mm. Will that happen nowadays? No, be not to the same degree, because now Virgin nor the other airlines, if God forbid you're going to have a heart attack or a stroke, the best place you can be is on one of these aircraft, because we've got all, all the things to deal with it. Yeah, I know. I always say it was a good place to be unwell, yeah, which is counter to what most people would say. Yeah, and that, again, the cabin crew are superbly trained to deal with that. Mm. Mm. Awesome. So there you go. That wasn't too bad. That was a, you, you did give a fuller answer, which I appreciate, and I was being a little bit dismissive saying it was a quick one. <laughs> so the, the last question that's on my hit list for today is the 737 MAX, because there's quite a lot of stuff ah. written about that. There's been a bit in the media. They've got a history. I just wonder what your view on it is, because I think this is something that a lot of, I know people have swapped off flights when they think they're going to be on it. Because uh, they're 737, not, yeah. yeah, 737 Max, though, in particular. And I get it. As I looked at it, and my thoughts were, when I was out walking the dogs this morning, I was thinking about that, and I thought, yeah, okay, but I want to have a distrust of media, but I'm nervous of media. And I'll give mm. you an example. Remember the fuel crisis we had in UK here recently. Yes. Well, in my view, that wasn't a fuel crisis until the media turned into a fuel crisis because there's plenty of fuel out there, but it was just when everybody started rushing around filling up their tanks that we actually created a fuel crisis. Mm. So, my view, is it? Is it? No, I would say, actually, is it probably going to be a safer aircraft to fly on or more safe because it is subject of so much scrutiny and the problems they encountered, do Boeing want to let something go wrong again with this aircraft? And I was thinking, no. no. And it, it all, I almost put it in the mind of people say, you know, well, with captains, when we take an aircraft to go flying, you know, well, what if this doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? No, there are strict rules on what, is, what you're allowed to accept and what you're not allowed to accept. And it goes back to the engineers, the load masters, us working as a family. The engineers are not going to give me an aircraft that's double The aircraft they give me is airworthy. Yeah. In their mind. If I'm uncomfortable at any time, I just go, well, not happy with this. Could you have a look at it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We fixed it or it's not fixed. If it's not fixed, we don't go. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. So, I'm not a 737 pilot, but my view would be those 737 pilots are not going to fly an aircraft they're not comfortable with. Mm. It's just, you know, 
So can I ask just a sort of a slightly sense. leading question then? Would you, if you were back to go on holiday and you're off to Magaluf and it was a 737 MAX, would you have any concerns about it? Nope. Okay. What about that when you're a pilot would... generally in the back? Are you, are you able to sort of let go and trust them or are you, are you a bit, do you find that you need to be in control? <laughs> now, my, my, my wife says I'm one of the worst people to travel with because... Uh, I'm generally asleep by the time we've taxied out. <laughs> so, you know, she wants to talk about what's this noise, what's that noise, and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Snoring, that's the noise. So, yeah. so this is interesting, isn't it? So you don't meet these pilots. You could be on any airline. <laughs> You're asleep yeah. before you even take off. You yeah, I'm them. asleep taxing out. <laughs> might, might, might be something to do with a couple of gin and tonics in the clubhouse, but, you know, but no, it's... No. It's. I know my colleagues are highly trained up the front, and they are doing a good job. Yeah, you know, they, mm. they are. They're professionals. So no, I don't look at it. Well, I want to fly on this aircraft or that aircraft from a technical. No. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's and the really nice. Is, are there any airlines that I wouldn't fly with? No. It's if they've been approved by the CAFAA. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what we say if it's in your airspace. Yes. It has to meet the same standards. There's international standards and there's national standards as well. That, that They have to comply with those. And so if you, if it's yeah. taken off from your airspace, it's meeting your standards. So even if you sometimes you hear an airline think, I've never heard of them, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't trust them because they still yeah. have to go through the same criteria. At some point, no one has heard of Virgin and thought, who's this yeah, crazy exactly. bearded guy? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what does he know about airlines? But they well, have to exactly go through the same criteria, you know. And the thing, the thing I'm touched on, you know, when the come off, when the captain comes on to do the PA when they first come aboard, and it's captain, hello, this is your captain. My name's Shirley. Whatever. Oh my God, it's a woman driving. No, she's been through the same training as me, and actually, I would argue, probably better because they probably saved some additional challenges. Yeah, and that's a good one because I've, because anybody listening to this will be having a reaction thinking that sounds like we're being sexist. So just to clarify, I have had over the years, probably thousands of female nervous passengers say, I know I shouldn't say this, but I feel more comfortable when I hear a male voice come over the PA yeah. and I just say, what are you talking about? You know, anyone that's ended up there, it has to earn their rights to be there, you know, and uh, yeah. and the other thing is they want them to be posh. Ah, of course. You've got <laughs> to be posh. You've got to say posh. Posh means exactly. safe. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pete's like, he's, he's actually from the East End of London, but when he's talking on the PA, he, he's got his captain yes. voice. Is that right? Oh, absolutely, you've got to put on your captain voice to make the customers feel comfortable. Yeah, but it's just about certainty, isn't it? Because when when I've asked pilots to speak on the fear of flying courses I've run over the years, if there's one word I say, it's like, just give them a sense of the certainty that you have in terms of the safety, the backups, the procedures. That's what people really want, you know, and that requires you just answering the question. You know, don't, don't sugarcoat it, just answer it like you've done today. It's, Really good. No, you see, you make as ever it is, you make a really good point. Uh, and I'll use another example. We had one time where the aircraft could be a bit like a computer, and we had one 
well, this 787 wasn't happy in the startup sequence. So gave it back to the engineers. And what the engineers said is we had to totally depower the aircraft and wake it up again. And I said, okay, what's going to happen? Well, the cabin's going to go dark and all that. And okay, it was during the day. But I said, okay, right, give me a minute or two. And what I did was walked out into the cabin. And so doing the PA so the customers can see you. Mm. And you explain to them what's going on, and they can actually see the captain, and the captain's not there shaking, quivering, and sweating profusely. Yeah. You know, he's just getting his next cup of tea while he waits for the engineers to fix the aircraft. Mm. And that's the thing I think a lot of our customers, and again, on pilot training, is give the customers the information. Yeah. Because that's one of the big things when you, and then people talk about handing over control. Providing you know what's going on and what you can expect to go on, you generally are a lot more comfortable. Yeah, I think, and to add to that, that's great. And so you've got the calm and you've got the certainty. Uh, and if those of you kind of want to know what is going on, Pete Higgins is the, the checklist, which is, you can get it in the Facebook group as well, the Love Fly of Comfier Flying. He did it, he literally went through a bunch of flights, got it checked over by a load of other pilots. And he's done exactly what's going to happen at every point. And people are facts. Yeah. And so it's not about replacing one ritual with another. What happens is after a while, people stop noticing because they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're done with it. So the first few times you're like, tick, tick, tick. And then after that, you're like, I don't need to think about it. I know it's all going on. Yeah. And it's one of the things, I think it was one of the questions. There was one of you, I think it was the lady asked about what all the secret bombs and signals and messages are and stuff like that. No, there, there are no secret bombs. However, they may appear to you that they are. So, for mm. example, when you first get on the aircraft, the aircraft's probably running on the auxiliary power unit, which is providing the air condition, the electric. As you get to depart and as the pilots start up the engines, the aircraft switches from the auxiliary power unit's generators to the aircraft generators. And so the lights flash and the cabin boom, boom, boom. And you hear clunks as the generators switch on and switch off. That's normal. Yes. The next thing is, as the pilots start to exercise the flying controls to make sure they're working and also put the flaps out. As the flaps drive out, depending on your aircraft, they're either hydraulic or electrical, you hear the that's normal. <laughs> normal. As you get to the runway, just by when you're ready to take off, there's the double bong. Bing bong, bing bong. Oh, yeah, that's a, a secret message. message. That's definitely a secret yeah, right. message. You know that one. All it is is warning the cabin crew we're just about to take off to make sure everybody sat down and strapped in. Yeah. But and what, people, again, we talked about, they will look to the cabin crew to see how they're reacting for signals. So when they see one of the cabin crew, you know, mid-galley on the phone talking to somebody and the cabin crew, I mean, David got when he used to teach, used to say all this and it was, and it was he's great, like, wasn't no, it? no, you know, and the people look at that thinking, oh my God, what's going on? All he's saying is one of his friends down the back has got a five night St. Lucia followed by a four night Barbados. <laughs> where all he's got is a block of standby. <laughs> so no, no, yeah. How did you get that roster? <laughs> yeah. So it's like uh, we we start 
if we're not careful, we can read into things that aren't there, can't we? So I think that's a quite a common thing. So yeah. I'm just going to, I'm aware that we're getting like, we've been going like 50 odd minutes, which has been brilliant. But I'd like to ask, there was one thing that happened during our courses together. And it's always been my, whenever I meet you, we always kind of bring it up again, don't we? And it's, and it's actually the principle that it is, is a psych- psychology one, which is around cognitive dissonance in other words you hear something that you don't agree with because it doesn't yeah. match your world view so it's a kind of yeah. recognized phenomenon and we had it beautifully during one of the courses that pete was running <laughs> because mostly this sort of stuff goes on in people's heads they're like they're going like i don't believe him i don't believe him i don't believe him uh, oh yeah maybe i do believe that I don't, you know so this is always going on when people are listening to information which is different to what they may have believed up until then and we had a beautiful scenario and I can't remember what what were you talking about it, it was about it was about turbulence and air pockets and she, she had experienced the Magaluf plunge you know where yeah. the aircraft it felt like it dropped 10,000 feet and yeah. I, I was basically said to her okay yes it, I, I know it felt like that but it's that's physically impossible no, because and she went Oh, I'm not having that. <laughs> yeah, it was a great moment, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that sort of inner dialogue was verbally, it was so strong a reaction. And we've often said that, haven't we? I'm not having that. And uh, I just love that because I think it's that's exactly it, isn't it? So at some point you have to decide who do I believe, you know, what I've read yeah. in the media, what I think's going on, what my belly's telling me, or what a professional pilot is is trying to explain yeah. and and it is a is a hard shift for us as humans to let go of previous held beliefs and to start to entertain new ones and so it's quite a shift that a lot of people have to go through so that was a lovely moment wasn't it it's just uh, she was a lovely lady and she's still every time you and i talk we have a bloody good giggle about that yeah it's just great the thing she, was she was being open and honest as you said yeah. that yeah. was what she felt yeah, it's just nice that we got that. That's what people are thinking anyway. She's just the first that's actually verbalised it in all the years. It's great. Yeah. Okay, then let um, me press you for one last tip then, if I may, which is if you had to say to people who are listening, I always ask at the end of the podcast and say, right, one reassuring message or bit of advice or anything you'd give based on all your years of flying military, non-military, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what would you say? Right, the, the, well, the thing... The, the question we always got asked uh, at the end of the pilot presentation was, well, how many bad experiences have you had? How many emergencies have you had? And the answer to the question, and I never said this in this way before, but I'll go for it, is in my civilian flying career, I've had, well, I don't know, probably tens, maybe hundreds of engine failures, a uh, number of hydraulic failures, fuel failures. I think I've ditched four times, maybe five, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you name it, I've probably experienced it. However, they've all been in the simulator. Yeah. <laughs> Actual flying, mm. no. Never had an engine failure, never had an hydraulic failure. Yeah, the odd generator tricked off, but that's a bit like the internal light going in your car. You know, there's so many backups and backups. As I said earlier on, yeah, I've diverted five times, but nothing to do with any technical issues of the aircraft. And would you say that's a pretty boring life? I hope most pilots have a pretty boring life. <laughs> and the thing is, <laughs> yeah, 
It's, yeah. You hear about them, but it's never happened to me. Yeah, and you've been flying forever. Yeah. No, no disrespect. <laughs> well, no, I, I worked it out. Just, you know, I've spent uh, just over three years of my life in the air. So that's be continuous. Yeah, if I was, if all my flying hours, which is about twenty eight thousand hours, you know, <laughs> if you add three more together, that's three and a bit years in the air. That's mad, isn't time. it? It's, that's a good way to think about it. I think it's quite hard to get your head around what that actually means. But literally being in the air all that time, yeah, and you've got nothing to report. No, exactly that. It's like ops normal. Yeah, long and and that's the thing to to go to the people that are listening is yeah. Yeah, when things happen, they make it into the newspaper, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I watched the uh, what is it, uh, aircraft accident, and all those programs. But I look at it from a different viewpoint. I think it's one of the things that pilots are undergoing is human factors training, threat and error management training, is actually yeah to understanding how we as pilot works. And yeah, every we're going to make mistakes, sure, but it's actually to recover from them, and none mm. of them. Are disastrous, you know, they're mm. minor mistakes. But we're trained in similar. All the people that drive your cars, you pass your driving test. When do you ever then go back and get examined again on your driving skills? Never. Never. Whereas as pilots, yeah, we're assessed in the simulator every six months and we're assessed on the line once a year both in terms of, well, in fact, there's nine, nine categories we're checked on. One of them is our human factors crew resource management. How do we work? Do we work well together? Yeah. And if not, there's training. And the other thing I'll say is, as pilots, our operation of the aircraft is continually monitored. It's not a spy in the camp. It's called candid. But it's looking for if things aren't, I won't say perfect, uh, maybe slightly suboptimal, not dangerous for anybody goes there. Okay, then the company will look at it is, is it an individual pilot or is it something peculiar to that airport? In which case, if there is, okay, let's look at it. How do we make it better? And that's the thing that people need to understand. There is continual improvement. We never sit back and say, right, no, we're perfect now. We're never perfect. There is always areas we can improve. Peter. That was a long-winded answer to it. Oh, it's great. Honestly, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, that's going to be a great podcast. It's actually going to come out this week as well, So, uh, which will mean nothing to people when they listen to it, but it's going to come out this week. So I'm so grateful for your time and answering all those questions as well. And also, again, just to say thanks for all the stuff that you do in the Facebook group, because it's really valuable to people, you know, and uh, so really grateful. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And, and again, to your audience, you know, keep the questions coming because I love it. There's loads of other people out there that have the same question but don't feel comfortable asking them. Perfect. Perfect.